As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Cyber Monday and a new VanCast for the VIPs. Drancer, I feel like saying, have we got a deal for you? But I could say that before every VanCast, right? Like uh, content <laughs> that you can't find anywhere else and free shipping directly to your desktop or your, your phone. At least 30 minutes of inane Canucks talk. <laughs> regardless of what's going on in the world, regardless of what's going on in the Canucks world, and there's been a whole lot of nothing. Like, we're at a point now, JPAT, where no team in the NHL has made a trade in seven and a half weeks. And the last time that an unrestricted free agent signed uh, was Dominic Cahoon, and that was November 2nd. We haven't seen anything other than teams locking up their restricted free agents in three and a half weeks. And the good thing about doing this podcast with you, JPAT, I just know we're going to have no problem coming up with good Canucks angles. <laughs> That's just what we do. It doesn't even matter what's going on in the world. We can do it. Right. We can and, figure and it out. And here we are. It's, you know, it's the end of another month and still no news from the NHL. And I, I guess deep down, I, I thought, okay, through November, by the end of the month, we'd have something. But here we are. Tomorrow's December the 1st, and we're still waiting. And, and look, I understand the prudence that... You know, the COVID numbers are off the charts in a bad way. And Mm -hmm. you see with the National Football League, like you've got a team that doesn't have a quarterback. You've got a team that doesn't have a team in Baltimore. And now the San Francisco 49ers can't play at home. So, you know, the NFL is proof of, you know, trying to make this happen at the height of the pandemic. And and so I understand that the NHL is trying to wait this out. But at the same time, uh, no news, just it, it sort of feels like they have left everybody hanging in terms of giving us any indication of a return to play plan. Yeah. And obviously there's significant money issues to iron out between the players and the owners. And look, the owners and the players signed a deal 
that I thought was a pretty fair deal. Like I thought it was a square deal when it was signed with the exception that I thought over the term of the deal, the owners would do better because in a normal world, the cap math would remain a little bit dire for the players. Like I thought that this deal would, you know, in a world where the COVID-19 situation is relatively under control by 2022-23 would give the owners like four years of runway in which they'd be just like rolling in it while player salaries are essentially artificially restrained almost across the board. And, you know, to me, this was like a long-term play for owners. And now owners are coming back and asking for an additional 10% salary deferment. If I'm a player, that reads to me like, you know, you want your cake and you want to eat it too. Uh, I would be furious, but I'd also be cognizant of the fact that if we're in this situation, uh, that suggests anyway that we got a decent deal. Uh, and that we can at least get something else, right? Like we can at least get something else uh, from this in terms of, you know, whether it's contracting rights or, you know, uh, maybe something that relaxes. Like right now, the the way the MOU reads to me, they share risk early, but the owners benefit more over the long term. Obviously, the owners now feel like they are shouldering too much risk in the immediate future seems to me that the there's should be a relatively straightforward compromise where the players get more uh, down the line um, you know or, or maybe they do something to relax the way that the salary cap is restrained uh, through the you know life of this new CBA extension I mean there's something that should be able to be done here because it seems to me that it's just about you know further mitigating owners short-term risk and considering the structure of the deal in the way that you know I think they're likely to be bigger winners over the long term uh, relaxing that to some extent seems like a, a play that makes sense for the players but the problem is is that the most senior members of the PA aren't exactly interested in like a fairer deal in 24-25 so uh, it's going to be complicated, clearly. And then even once that's done, playing, playing safely, the protocols that will have to be put in place. I mean, playing during the second wave is going to be extraordinarily difficult. I think part of what has me down, and maybe <clears> it's the Monday, maybe it's the, the weather, whatever the case, I think it's also the fact, and you, I, I saw you were the guy that retweeted it, that's where I picked it up, was these incredible photos and the video of a handful of Canucks and a few others out on skates Amazing. on this pond on the glacier <laughs> just north of Vancouver. And if people haven't seen it, like it's out there now everywhere. Like it yeah. is spectacular. And it was EP40, it was Adler, it was Demko, McEwen, Troy Stetcher, Jason Garrison got the call as well. Patrick and Chan. Patrick Chan out there doing triple South <laughs> so cows sick. and so yeah. cool. <laughs> like, like I would, I would love, I would love to watch Patrick Chan feed EP forty for one timers. Like, like give me that. That's what I want. I want, I want Patrick Chan doing a pirouette and then feeding EP forty so that I can see him tee off on a one timer. You know, coming off of that whatever triple sow cow or or something impressive. Like that's what I want. That would have been great. Um, so cool. Just so cool. And and I loved it being put to I love the way they put it together as a photo essay. Uh, great work by all involved. Yeah, and, and Bradley Friesen is the guy behind it, and he's the, the helicopter pilot who I, I think he did Biz Nasty's ALS challenge. Remember when he got right. the ice bucket dumped on him from the helicopter? It was sort of in that <laughs> same area, I think. But this guy has also flown other Canucks, uh, Horvat and Daniel Sedin at one time. 
But we're just at a point in time where we're all missing hockey so much. And then to see that, like, sign me up. They should sell tickets for another <laughs> helicopter just well, to let people watch this thing, to, to spectate. <laughs> like, the, the, the visuals were absolutely stunning. The best part, the best part is like slide seven of the photo essay is like at the end of it, Alex Edler said we should do this again, but do a barbecue and have beer. And I was like, yeah, obviously. <laughs> like, how did you guys mess that part up? <laughs> so good. But then, like, I saw this and I, and I expected to see it. I, I saw people saying, like, you know, here we go. This is you know, the NHL's got to find a way to play a game on a glacier like this. The you know, take it back to the frozen pond and. Like, you just stop and think for a sec. Like, it's spectacular. Like, the logistics of making something like that happen. And now I know there was talk about Lake Louise or, you know, somewhere in the Rockies, maybe a little more accessible. But the NHL is not going to have an outdoor game on a glacier in the middle of nowhere where you would have to airlift all this stuff in. As spectacular as it may be, that's just never going to happen. Not in a world where they're debating about 10% additional salary deferments, right? Like, but, but that said, if you're going to do something like this, like right now is the time to do it. Like right now is the time to package your product for television purposes, right? Like this is the, the baseball style schedule, for example, that they're discussing to limit travel costs during a, you know, presumed, hopeful, fingers crossed, pandemic abbreviated 2021 campaign, like the good thing about the um <laughs> the good thing about their about the idea of playing five games against you know Canucks Maple Leafs play five games in a row it's like a mini series right like it's a made for television product forget deferring travel costs it's event based television it's like it's like FX doing Fargo you know <laughs> like it's uh, the mini seriesization of the season and for me, that's like a good for TV product, right? Like that's, you know, what, what do say you staggered it so that Alberta, the Alberta teams play each other 10 times in a row, right? Like 10 games <laughs> over the course of a month, it's battle of Alberta month on Sportsnet. you know, like, like what do the regional ad sales look like for that? How much, like, it's a completely unique product from a partnerships perspective, from a sponsorship perspective, and in a world where your revenues are limited, like this is the way to go. This is like the John Landgraf is the FX president who really leaned into the miniseries. This is the John Landgrafization of the NHL season. It's good business. Like made for TV stunts is what's going to get the NHL through. And if it means playing on a glacier to juke your national TV ratings, like do it, do it. It's actually exactly the way you have to be thinking about it. And that's why the Lake Louise report gave me so much hope because it suggested to me that the NHL sees that issue clearly and was contemplating some creative, interesting ways of addressing it. Like play a game on a glacier. You're never going to do it again. It's never going to make sense for you again, but it actually kind of does right now. So uh, do it. Do it. Let's go. Let's go. Glacier Games, like, a, a, <laughs> uh, you know, a two-day event where all the Canadian teams play one another on a glacier. Like, come on. You'll get 10 million people watching. Uh, it's, the, it's, it's the best way to defer the money that, you know, all sports leagues, but the NHL in particular, are, are going to be missing in a world with limited gate revenue. I can see it right now. Canucks versus Senators, a throwback to the 2014 Heritage Classic. <laughs> yeah. We, <laughs> Mike DiPietro's starting. <laughs> Were you at uh, BC Place that day? 
Were you were you covering? I was not. Then? No, uh, I was. Uh, sorry, I was in the score newsroom. So I was. Uh, I covered the game remotely. Um, you know, but from from the newsroom, I was on the uh, digital desk. the The 2013-14 season is like like the 2013 draft in Philadelphia is like the only draft I ever missed. Or was it the 14 draft? Yeah, the 14 draft in Philly was the only draft I ever missed, and that's because I was attached at the hip to the. Sp- to the score news desk back then well you didn't miss much I, I i was there i was in the press box which was obviously miles from the rink itself yep. and you know we've seen all these great outdoor games and Sidney crosby in the snow in buffalo and you know it, it probably doesn't get yep. in a whole lot better than that visually but you think of the heritage classics across this country and then it just it felt like forced on so many levels it was a week after the gold medal game in sochi it mm-hmm. was you know, a terrible forced opponent, the Canucks in Ottawa, right? And they're trying to, like, harken back to the 19-whatever, 17 Stanley Cup. Like, come on. It, it wasn't even a, you know, it wasn't a 100-year anniversary. It was just, oh, here's two teams that haven't been able to play in an outdoor game. We're going to throw them at BC Place. We're going to call this thing the Heritage Classic. It was a week after the Olympics. I, I, I still think players had jet lag. I mean, I think that's part of, you know, in Torch's mind, what led to the decision to go with Eddie Lack. It was just an awful, awful weather day outside so they couldn't even have the roof open right they spend yeah. half a billion dollars on the upgrade to the stadium and and they had to have the roof closed because it was just it was a miserable weather day that way so you know my, my one big takeaway and I don't want to be sort of exposed as a fraud here but on the last pod we talked about my uh, dislike of sweaters my my right. moment my my most vivid memory of the heritage classic and you can tell i didn't have like the time of my life at this thing yeah. but you up, had to wear a sweater well partly yeah i rode up the elevator <laughs> i yep. rode up the elevator with gary bettman and bill daly from ground okay. level to the press box and i was laughing i was honestly stifling laughter the whole way because i was dressed exactly the same as the commissioner like I, I don't know how I didn't I don't know how I didn't take a picture but it was casual Gary it was dress pants and a blue sweater like a light blue sweater and I was wearing the same thing and like it, how I well, missed now, the opportunity now I know oh. why you hate sweaters well that's part of it but like the traction I could have got like you know dress like a commissioner day and post the photo it was, oh it would have been off the charts so I I missed did you my, have the same sensible sneakers. No, that's it. I do recall it was uh, dress pants and and dress shoes, yeah. and he was wearing sort of his uh, outdoor joggers that uh, oh, we've yeah. seen him wear from from time. Gary to time. Bettman's Gary Bettman's sensible sneakers, like yeah, underrated underrated NHL <laughs> attribute, um, like full tux sensible sneakers. I'm pretty sure that's how <laughs> Gary would attend a wedding. Uh, thanks to Neil Glassberg, by the way, from PBI, yeah, that was awesome. the last pod, and that was great, and got some good feedback there talking about uh, the intricacies of. Uh, hammering out contracts for coaches so uh, we continue to explore sort of outside the box topics for the podcast and we'll continue to do that until we get word that hockey is back the other thing too and you know we made a late uh, call for questions not that you needed a late call for questions because you already had a bunch but uh, reaction to your mailbag times two over the weekend was off the charts good like uh, triple digits in terms of questions and some really good ones. Like I don't know which yeah. ones didn't make the cut, but the ones that did, you know, the VIPs came through for you. They did. They always do, right? Like hundred yep. plus questions. There's nothing going on. 
the VIPs still wanted to know an awful lot. Like there were media questions. There was questions like looking for advice for, for breaking into the industry. There was questions projecting goal totals, questions about EP40, questions about Travis Green's contract talks, tons of prospect questions, like just awesome. And some the funny best. ones too, like yeah. lots of good jokes. Well, I like the fact that Chris got like the scattergun. I think he got six in at the end of the, <laughs> the one. But through it all, and my favorite had to be just the length. And I, I got to hear from you because you and I have gone back and forth on this, but I haven't actually heard in your own words. The, the length you went to answer the question that was essentially, you know, what does a full 82-game season look like in terms of point projection for Jake Furtanen? Yeah, I love I, like for for me, I read that and it like brings me back to a grade three like math problem. Like I'm one of those guys who, if you ask me what five plus four equals, like I have to write it down and like do it slowly. But if you ask me like what's what's a guy's shot differential if he's missed three, taken two, um, you know, like two are on goal, one goals hat gone in. Like if you put it in a I'm just one of those guys. I can't do math hypothetically, but the moment you put like a dollar sign in front of the money or in front of the number or the moment that the number represents like probabilities in poker or, or hockey stats, I'm like, yes, let's go. I can do this. You know, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. Um, that's always been true for me. So like I hated math class, but if it was the word problems where the question is posed to you in a sentence i was like oh i'm gonna get 95 percent on this test no problem baby let's go so for so me you it like, just brought me back you to liked that. What, so you like the one one train leaves the station at three o'clock oh, yeah. and the other you love that stuff? easy easy <laughs> like that stuff i can do in my sleep but then you put the same thing to me in in pure numbers and i'm like ah, uh, i'm an english major so <laughs> no so the uh the i i loved it and and you know, projecting goal totals, that's that's one of the funnest ones because you have to make some assumptions about usage, right? You have to make some um, assumptions about uh, someone's baseline performance. Um, you know, there's all sorts of tr uh, there's all sorts of ways you can factor it in. And then you split pe penalty power play if they contribute on the penalty kill. Uh, you know, if they're a player who defends leads, like one thing about for Tannen, for example, is like 35 points was what I ultimately set the over under at. And, um, you know, people will think that's light, but like Vertanen, because he plays so often when the Canucks are chasing leads, right? Like he's used as an offensive piece, but almost never plays when the Canucks are holding a lead late, which means he doesn't tend to get opportunities for like empty netters and like some of those things that make... Uh, projecting point totals for a guy like Tanner Pearson an awful lot more difficult, right? Because, you know, there's there's some number of points that they're going to get when the team's holding, like Vertanen doesn't have those. So that sort of deflates his, his projection a little bit from my perspective and also makes him a little bit easier to do. But look, I loved to go at that at great length. And, and I also think it's fun because people ask a question like that and they don't expect something technical, right? They expect... Just just numbers based on like you know oh I think he's gonna be a twenty five goal guy right like it's way more fun to go well under the hood uh, double check your work using three different sort of models and uh, and just like hit them with a ton of stuff plus uh, you know you immediately like I ran the piece an hour later you texted me and noted that you'd particularly enjoyed that one J Pat and yes, that to me yes. <laughs> meant the world meant the world and and I honestly had to use all of my very, very limited levels of self-control not to respond, yeah, but how many will Marcus Granlund get? <laughs>
Marcus Granlin, by the way, <laughs> lighting it up in the K. I was looking at that this morning. I think he might get his twenty-four goals. They just nice. they're coming in the they're coming in the K this year, as opposed to in the National Hockey League. But he's having a well, terrific season. Yeah, he's so I was thinking. Year. I was thinking we should do a challenge, J. Pat. Okay. Yes. I'm once up for a the challenge. once the once the schedule is set, right? Like once we know what the season will look like and we know how many games they'll play, right? I'm thinking you bring back your goal projections for an episode of the VanCast. Bring back your goal projections, and I'll bring back my goal projections. And it'll be like man versus machine. And then over the course of the season, we'll see who does better. And, and I mean, I don't know if we're going to put like a, st- a pack of gum on it, but we can put some sort of stakes on it. And it'll be man versus machine. Who does better projecting goal totals? I'm up for it. I'm, yes. I'm, I'll, I'll start. Th- yeah, absolutely. I'm in for that. Yes. So the VIPs have that to look forward to for sure. Hey, I want to ask you something about something you wrote last week, not in the mailbag. We'll get okay. to that in a second. It's about Brock Besser. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. So you wrote, you looked at sort of the core group of young players and ways that they can improve over last season. And I think we all think that certainly there's room for Hughes and Pedersen to to continue to develop, but I don't think we've seen anywhere close to, to top end for either one of those guys. But a guy that gets talked about a ton in this market, and understandably so, when you go from 29 to 26 down to 16 goals, albeit with the rib injury that uh, truncated his season more than others. But, you know, there is some question about Brock Besser. Like, where is he as a goal scorer? People talked about him rounding out his game, his two-way performance. All that's great. But at the end of the day, uh, this is a guy that scored 29 as a rookie, burst out of the scene, scored those four goals in nine games uh, when he came out of college. And it looked like the sky truly was the limit. And here we are now after his third full season. And he's coming off a 16-goal year, which felt highly disappointing, especially the second half of the season where goals were hard to come by and then COVID hit. Now, he was able to contribute uh, at times in the playoffs, but there are still these questions about, you know, can he be the guy that people wondered? And you wrote about the power play being the key sort of to the return of Brock Besser. Yeah, I mean, if you look at Besser's first half, right, when he was trending to be, you know, an easy 25 goal scorer and point a game guy effectively, right? Uh, when you look at that, he was doing all of that while playing on the half wall, one of the half walls, right? Like the Canucks first iteration of the Canucks league leading power play last season included Besser mostly on his one-time side, but occasionally switching to his downhill slot side. And the Canucks would sort of flip Pedersen and Besser, you know, on occasion in the same game. 
Um, and, it, and it worked really well at the start of the year. And then things started to change a little bit. And this is sort of where Besser's ice time began to diminish, but also his power play position began to change a bit. Like he moved to the bumper one game, then he moved down low. Uh, then he moved off the unit entirely once to fully sort of join the club. Uh, and then he was back on PP1 in the playoffs, but he was at the net front, which is not really where he's been most effective. Now, when he is the one-timer option uh, on the power play, he has through his NHL career to this point, and granted some of this predates the arrival of Elias Pettersson and his atom bomb from the right circle, but, you know, he became an elite shot volume guy, like like top 10 in the NHL, just gunning it. And when he is fed at that rate, even though his one-timer is not his most effective shot, uh, he's going to get his goals. Like, he's going to score his goals. The logic of that, however, was undermined by the Toffoli acquisition and by Miller... JT Miller being so good on his strong side as a playmaker, right? And when Miller's in that spot as a playmaker, that sort of changes things. Now, I think internally the Canucks feel um, that their power play was at its most dangerous when Miller was on his offside and operating things, you know, sort of as the signal caller for Canucks PP1. Um, I think there's probably truth to that. However, I also sort of wonder, like, isn't he going to be in terms of getting the most out of these five guys, isn't he going to be best served being in that Toffoli role, like at the net front and rolling out to support the cycle? Um, you know, just based on his playmaking ability, you'd think that he's the better option, for example, to make those passes into the bumper spot for Horvat uh, than Besser would be, even though Besser's playmaking has improved a lot. So with Toffoli's departure, I think the path for Besser to re regain the kind of shot volume that he's traditionally been able to generate five on four is back. I think it's a, a relatively straight path. And if that happens, uh, I think there's no question. Uh, like he was unfortunate in terms of his shooting as, as a third year player. Like that is not a level of conversion that we're going to see from Besser going forward. Like this is a player who can beat goaltenders when they're squared up. And I don't want to hear anything about his shot velocity. Like I don't buy it. People around the league don't buy it. I don't think the Canucks buy it. I just think this is a guy who didn't get any breaks and whose shot volume fell off in part because uh, of his sort of power play usage, especially in the second half. Um, and just because the Canucks have more weapons, like that's natural. He's not going to be a top 10 shot volume guy, but he doesn't have to be to get his, uh, 30, 30 goals. I definitely think is well within reach. If he's, you know, consistently on with Pedersen at five on five, um, and is a, a staple on PP one at the half wall. Uh, if those two things happen, I think he's, in, he's a, for sure like doesn't even need a bounce, just needs to stay healthy to score at a 30 goal over 82 game pace. Uh, in the event, however, that, you know, he plays with Horvat in a matchup role um, or he plays at the net front, then then I do think we'll have to change our sort of expectations a bit just because that's going to be the role that he's placed into. Like that's going to be more of a, you know, 25 goal, 60 point over 82 game pace. But if we're talking about a player where that's their floor, we're talking about a really exceptional piece. And that's what Besser is. Like, that's what Besser is. I just think that he's got this game where, like, he's not the fastest guy, right? He's not the most physical guy. Um, a lot of his game is based on smarts. 
And I think that can go unnoticed when his shooting percentage is low. Like, I think that becomes a player who people think it's quiet around, even though they're doing the types of things that actually help their team win uh, in sort of subtle ways. Uh, For me, that's always the type of player that I like and value. Like, that's the hockey IQ guy who, who does things that maybe fans don't notice. They're maybe a little bit quiet, but they're right. It involves steady two-way play and just good, smart, productive touches of the puck. Like, that's what Besser does even when he's off. Uh, when he's on, though, and uh, when he's on, though, he needs to be finishing. And and I think just looking at his profile, looking at his relatively consistent shot volume, even though it took a bit of a dip last season, uh, looking at his likely usage and looking at his career shooting rates, like, I still think we can expect this guy to be a first-line uh, rate scorer over the course of a full season if he can stay healthy. Uh, and I got lots of time for that, although I have to be careful now because uh, if I'm going to offer up a goal prediction, I uh, have to take all of these <laughs> things into account and uh, right. and and sit on it. But I, I do wonder, like in his rookie season, you know, he was featured on the power play with Daniel and Henrik, where Daniel essentially had morphed into Henrik by the end of his career. Like Daniel wasn't a one-shot shooter. He wasn't nearly the clinical finisher that he was. And so I do think, you know, this new kid on the block with this wrist shot sort of became the the sexy choice and and it worked out for him and for the hockey club but it stands to reason as not you insert <laughs> pardon not from Hedler, not but, for but, it, but it stands it stands to reason that as you add Pedersen and you add Hughes and you add JT Miller you know the players around Brock Besser they want the puck they want to shoot it as well I mean that's going to cut into his shot opportunities to the point that you know, where were the Canucks most effective on the power play last year? Horvat led the team in power play goals because I think teams had to respect the outside and the shot options and that freed up Horvat for that quick play to the middle. And we saw him score a bunch with, you know, the, the high slot shot from the bumper. So, you know, the, it, it, they've surrounded Besser with better players. I, I'm just not convinced that he's going to touch the puck enough in shooting positions on the power play to see a huge jump there. But I do think just based on percentages at even strength and a shot yes. volume that certainly, certainly there is room for improvement. The, the, well, he'll bounce back there for sure. The power play though is the key from him being like a 25 and a 30 ish goal guy, right? Like that's going to make the difference. And I, I agree with you. If he's at the net front, then that sort of changes the dynamic of what we're talking about and relaxes the expectations significantly. But I also think when you look at the Canucks power play and how much teams are now cheating off of Pedersen, right? Or, or and 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 what that opened up for Horvat in the bumper, right? Like that sort of the Horvat became their primary goal scorer on the power play in part because Petey's the atom bomb, right? Like he's Randy Moss with the Patriots and Paul Horvat became Wes Welker. But eventually things will relax. Like teams will start cheating off of more than just Pedersen. They will begin to like, you're going to need to come up with more and more weapons as this group works together. And the, the interesting part is, you know, what you've seen with the Washington Capitals power play, uh, which has had so much time together to build chemistry, right? Like the Sedin twins talk about the Washington Capitals power play. And they're like, those guys know how to play, right? Like they think of them as like the group that doesn't leave things on the table that some of the other NHL power plays and teams do. Cause they're all just shoot, shoot, shoot. Um, the Canucks have a chance to morph into that. And part of that, I do think in terms of finding a new wrinkle, finding a new weapon is going to be finding ways again to get Besser shot off. Um, I suspect that they'll, you know, figure that out. I think that if he can improve his one-timer especially, then him at that left half wall 
uh, would do an awful lot of good, especially because that lets you use JT Miller down low as like a primary puck retrieval guy and as a guy reading off of the cycle game uh, to sort of be that like down low relief valve. Um, I think he could be absolutely lethal in that spot just for, in a variety of different ways. Uh, that's what makes the most sense in my mind's eye. That's what I expect to see when we see the Canucks hit the ice again. All right, so in this year that has been 2020, one of the stories that sort of uh, dogged the Canucks a little bit was that report ahead of the return to play into the bubble that, you know, they were shopping Brock Besser, right? Like there right. was trade talk and, and the Canucks had had this discussion. The Canucks denied it. Brock Besser remains with the hockey club. And whenever they get up and running, he's uh, seemingly going to be there. But trade talk seems to be in vogue here. Uh, so you wrote about trade tiers. And I see Jonas Siegel uh, also mm-hmm. writing about the 50 most valuable assets in hockey in terms of trade value. And maybe we start with Jonas's piece because it's available at The Athletic as well. Uh, from a Canucks perspective, he's got Hughes and Pedersen at 11th and 10th on the list, respectively. So uh, essentially two top 10 guys there. Besser got honorable mention. I guess what surprised me was JT Miller was lumped in with a group that he called others. And there was no mention whatsoever of Bo Horvat, who's got three years left at five and a half. Like that seems like a ridiculously valuable contract. Yeah, I think I think Besser. I mean, sorry, I think Bo Horvat has the third most trade value among Canucks players. And and I did my list, of course. I, I knew Jonas's was coming. I consulted on it a little bit. I couldn't convince him that Pedersen should be above the uh, three blue chip young defensemen in Haskinen, Makar, and Hughes. But the reason that Pedersen should be above those guys, in my mind, is that there's three of those guys and no one else who you can compare to Pedersen. Right? Like he's the rarer piece. So for me. Uh, Pedersen is one, um, you know, or should be ahead of those those three guys. But still, a lot of respect for Vancouver's best young players, as there should be. Um, you know, they're going to be top 20 contributors on entry-level deals next year. That's ridiculous. So, um, yeah, uh, look, I like Jonas's list. I think Bo Horvat probably makes mine, to be totally honest with you. I think 5.5 for a, you know, 50-point second-line center who raised his game in the playoffs. Like, I think the Hall that a team would have to pay to pry Horvat loose would be massive, like absolutely massive. And I, I, you know, I think he's one of the most valuable. um, I think he's a ridiculously valuable trade chip, not that the Canucks would ever consider it. So yeah, no, for me, Horvat would be on the list, frankly, but, but Jonas did great work. I loved it. I love Austin Matthews third. I'm sure the comments are very happy about that, (laughs) Uh, but he deserves to be there, right? Like he is the best goal scorer in hockey. Um, you know, honestly, he's probably the closest comparable for Pedersen, um, frankly. So, no, I like the list. I like the exercise. And I think it's an interesting exercise to go through right now, you know, because while it is, you know, the dead of whatever we're in, in the hockey offseason, um, I do think there's going to be the secondary market that forms here. Like, there's teams that are going to need to make moves. There's too many good unrestricted free agents unsigned. Like, there is going to be moves once there is clarity. There is going to be a second wave of off-season news uh, at some point, hopefully this month. And so I think taking stock of sort of where teams and players are, even if the moves we see aren't, you know, those involving the super elite, uh, I do think it's worth sort of looking at. 
at the moment. And, and I liked, um, I like Jonas's list. The one, the one sort of influence I think I had in a lasting fashion on his list was I was like, I looked over his list and the first comment I had other than, you know, I, I think Pedersen's too low, uh, was, uh, was Aho is too low. I think he had Aho like in the thirties or something. And, and for me, Aho is just an absolute beast on a sweetheart contract. Thanks to Mark Bergevin. Well, and I, I, I liked, I, I like the concept. I, like, I'm not going to go through the whole list. We'll get people in the VIPs can go check it out and read for themselves. The work is there. Uh, I will say there were a couple of things that I, I, I like particularly. One is the photo that accompanies your article on the app is EP40 and Louie standing side by side <laughs> and sort of covers the covers the gamut the the range of uh, of the topics covered but also as much I don't as... have a, I don't have a choice in that by the way I just want to shout out um, okay. my editor on that one that was good stuff but beyond that beyond the actual meat of the article I got a kick out of the titles of the various tiers as well so you had the untouchables then it moved along you had the uh, the short, polite conversation that ends with, yeah, we're not trading him. And then we got around to, uh, I'll hear you out, but if this leaks to Dolly Wall, I'm denying it. That's a good tier. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I like that one. <laughs> the, this better be good if you're talking about him. Uh, and then it carried on down to uh, some guys that uh, obviously, you know, their trade value is negative. And right. that may, you know, that, that may, just take a second to explain negative trade value. So, you know, Positive trade value, obviously, you have to trade an asset to acquire this guy. Negative trade value means I have to bundle assets with him in order to move him. And this says not a this doesn't say a ton necessarily about a player's quality so much as it says a lot about where they play, like what their role is, and the amount of term and and dollars attached to them. Because, you know, in a cap system, it's an efficiency competition. And if you have an inefficient bottom six or depth asset or a utility asset, um, that's going to be hard to move. Like teams are going to see that as, you know, a sunk opportunity cost and, and be unwilling to acquire that player. But maybe they'd take him if you sweeten it significantly, right? So that's sort of what negative value implies. And honestly, I think as I went through this, like there were a couple points that I wanted to make anyway that I'd been like thinking about and stewing on that I sort of shoehorned into this article. And, and one of them is the endowment effect, right? The idea that teams or owners like it's a behavioral economics concept but i think in the way that it applies to hockey teams is that teams themselves because you know get attached to their own players and tend to overvalue them and and that can extend to the point where even though like a guy has been in the organization for four or five years and isn't breaking through and probably isn't going to break through for you but but might be an nhl player for another team teams generally don't trade that guy for a minor leaguer like a like minor leaguer um and I, I don't think that that's necessarily the most efficient way in in a utopian universe to manage talent like in baseball all the time we see teams trade like x outfielder who's not going to play for us for x you know minor league pitcher who's one level down who might be a reliever down the line um and you get some help now and we get some help later and like we see teams shuffle the decks and trade depth contributors and we just don't see it almost ever in the NHL. And I think it's because teams are A, attached to their guys and B, super risk averse about being burned by minor or, or small deals, right? Like, and, and I do think that that ultimately is just not an efficient, necessarily the most efficient way 
uh, from a global perspective of NHL teams managing their assets. So that, that was like a point I wanted to make. So I shoehorned it into this article. And the other one that I wanted to make was that Furland, especially in this flat cap world, like Canucks fans think about the prospect of Furland on LTI and think, well, that opens up space and options for the Canucks, right? But what I think people don't understand too is that to some extent, that also might give him some value to another team. Now, not a ton of it because his deal's not insured. So this is an expensive, you know, way of of becoming cap compliant, probably too expensive. But there is a world in which a Furland deal could make sense for the Canucks if they find a trade partner that's desperate enough to shed salary. And I use the Tampa Bay Lightning as an example, but there's a couple teams that could apply. Um, you know, this is one where the Arizona Coyotes might not, right? Because they 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 wouldn't have the cash flow necessarily. But, you know, the Islanders, the Lightning, like some of those teams that are in cap trouble might be willing to take on an LTI type deal uh, because of how that allows them to clear cap space, especially if the Canucks are taking money back, uh, potentially money that's attached to a guy who's going to provide value over a year or two. Um, you know, that could be a deal that makes sense with sort of sweeteners leveling it out one way or the other. And and that's just an interesting dynamic that I don't think, like people understand that if Furlan's out, that it opens things up for the Canucks, but I don't think they understand how that impacts his trade value, right? And and right. could make a Furlan deal something um, that, that at least is conceivable, albeit still unlikely. But you point out that he has the final say, right? Because he has trade protection for this coming full season. Full no movement clause for this coming season, although it although it's relaxed so that he doesn't have to be protected in expansion, as I understand it. Trade tiers and the titles that go along with them. Check it out. Uh, that is up <laughs> right now at The Athletic. Uh, also at The Athletic, uh, Bob McKenzie. Uh, making the rounds right now. He's got a new book out ahead of Christmas, Everyday Hockey Heroes. He joins Craig Custance on the full 60 this week. He is the Bob father for a reason. Uh, some great stories to tell, obviously. So check out uh, Bob McKenzie on the full 60 this week as well. Check out our comments section for each podcast episode at the Athletic app. Rate and subscribe the VanCast on Apple. I'm going to start circling the wagons now. I've got a homework assignment as uh, I try to figure out how many goals each Canuck is going to score. So we'll have some fun with that somewhere down the road but uh, we need our directive first. We need uh, a better sense yes. of, of when they're going to start scoring some of these goals. So maybe, just maybe, this is the week as November gives way to December. We'll see what happens. But uh, <laughs> uh, I've got real Hermione Granger vibes here. Like I'm just like, yay, homework, math problems. <laughs> <laughs> as, long, as long as they're in a sentence, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's go. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, hey, We've said it so many times before, uh, we hope for hockey back, but even if it's not, look, we've shown again here. 40 minutes, no problem. Lots of things to talk about. We'll continue to uh, drill down here on the VanCast. So for Drancer, it's Jay Pat. As always, thanks so much for listening to the VanCast and The Athletic and TheAthletic.com.